welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about digital distribution. How has the ability to download video games changed the landscape? What are the pros and cons of an all-digital future? To hear us answer these questions and many more, please turn this record over to Side B now. To help me discuss the many facets of digital media is a man who lives so far in the future he's already moved on to quantum media, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Doing well, Stephen. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, happy International Podcasting Day to you. Good, uh, you got anything, good. You got anything special planned for uh, International Podcasting Day, Jared? No, no buttons no. set up for, uh, no. for that line of questioning? No. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, Skynet, can I please speak with the uh, the real Jared Bruner now? Hey listen, I just got back from vacation so I am sorry if I sound a little different today. Oh, you've been replaced. We got, we got a, like a replicant situation going on here. Oh, uh, well, yes. I recently transcended my human form if that's what you are referring to. Oh, even better. You've, uh... You've hit the point of transcendence. I, I thought we were years out from that. That's that's. <laughs> yes, that's cool to hear. I don't I've know how much longer digital. I can carry this on. I've gone all digital to save space. It is really <laughs> convenient. I I hate this so much. I hate it, Jared. I Here, hate it. <laughs> let me install this day one patch. Maybe that will help. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> oh my god! How's that sound? Does that sound okay? My yeah, you're, sound, you're actually you're sounding much better. You're sounding much better. Okay, you're yeah, like that, your old self. Yeah, that day one patch it really makes a difference. <laughs> I, I there's nothing that can prepare me for your intros. Like <laughs> in in whatever it is, 13 episodes of doing this, I'm still like trying to catch up. I'm just here living my life. I don't know what to tell you, Jared. It is International Podcasting Day. Congratulations! Did you get me, an, um, you get me anything? I, I did. There's a there's a card. Um, it's coming snail mail. So okay. look for that. I mean, in, in an episode where we're talking about digital distribution, you decided to send my my present in the mail. That's there, okay, there's though. a Steam gift right. card in there, so <laughs> this is, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Why would you send that? Why would you buy a, a gift card and then send it through the mail? Listen, it was really stressful going my my transition into my now digital form. It was a little stressful. Some things got lost in the mix. I apologize, but. Here we are. Happy podcasting day to all. Yes. Did you make your traditional podcasting day dish for, for the dinner? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, being Jewish, it's not like it's not encouraged that we celebrate too many other uh, holidays outside of our uh, outside of our religion. Mm, yeah. And it was just but, Yom Kippur uh, recently. Yeah. I, but I, uh, I mean, trust me, I snuck in a few of those international podcasting day cookies, but don't tell anyone. Okay. I'll make sure. <laughs> All right, let's let's put a stop to this. This is it. Just gets worse and worse as we go on. Uh, let's introduce our guest. Uh, joining us is a, is a, an amazing person. He's a quality assurance engineer with Sony Interactive, and he's just a, a great friend of the show. We've known him for a long time. Please welcome Alex Fogelman. Alex, how you doing, man? Hey guys, uh, wait, hang on a minute. What's what's that? What my mother? What? How long? All night, you say? To shreds, <laughs> you testing. say? Oh, okay, sorry guys. Sorry, I was just wrapping up a, a PUBG game, and yeah, you know, there's some twelve-year-olds telling me some very offensive things about my mother. Oh well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's 
that's actually uh, I think pretty tame compared to some of the stuff that gets said on PUBG. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a compliment compared to this shit that I hear in the yeah. <laughs> Well, Alex, uh, obviously Jared and I know you really well. We've uh, we all went to college together. But for those that don't know you, what's your what's your background? What's your background with video games? How'd you get into your line of work? Spill it, brother. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, video games I just kind of grew up playing them. Um, I think as as good of an effort as my parents made with trying to nudge me away from uh, video games and you know generally wasting my life in front of a screen, uh, I found friends that had consoles and went over to their houses and played. Uh, and then eventually was able to turn that into a real big boy pants paying career. So, you know, take that mom and dad. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any of our parents sort of understood that video games were going to be more than just a toy. You know, like I think to, well, I don't know. I guess maybe like in my case, my dad might've realized that there was more to video games than it just being like idle entertainment. But I think for a lot of our parents, they saw it as like, oh, it's a phase. And when they grow up, they'll, they'll, move on to something more worthwhile and i think it's you know i think it's like surprising to a lot of people that like you could just play a video game online professionally that can be your full-time job yeah i mean it's uh it's kind of shocking in a way um i'm one of the people i don't watch a, a whole lot of professional sports but i do spend a fair amount of time watching professional league of legends and yeah here's a bunch of you know kids that are sitting there uh, 10, 12 years younger than me getting paid fairly decent salaries to effectively play video games all day. And they, you know, they travel the world to play in these tournaments. And it's like, wow, that's, you are actually living kind of that professional sports athlete life doing something that my parents thought was going to be a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how did you get into, uh, QA engineering? Like what, what is a QA engineer and how did you get into that line of work? What does QA mean? Um, effectively, it means we spend most of our time breaking other people's work. Uh, so if you really like being a destructive person, it's you know, a good line of work to be in. Um, we are ultimately responsible for taking the work that the engineers do, all of the, like the little buttons and colors and movements across a web page or an application that, um, that the development engineers do. Uh, and we try and break it every way that we can think of and then write a whole bunch of code uh, to create test cases to make sure that those breakpoints get fixed and that they don't happen again. Now, you are currently working for Sony Interactive. And I guess uh, now is probably a good time to, I guess, expressly say that you're not you're not here representing Sony in any capacity. Yes. Uh, everything that I say here is an opinion and a representation of me and only me and not Sony. Um yeah, HR requested that I get the legal stuff out of the way, so we'll we'll do that. How did you get into doing QA with Sony? And your your I mean your your job is like tangentially related to video games, right? Like you're working, uh, I think you said PlayStation Storefront. Yeah. Um, so the product that I work on right now is the PlayStation Storefront. Uh, anybody in the listening audience that has a PlayStation Three or Four. Um, you turn it on, you go to the PlayStation Store. Uh, everything you see there is you know stuff that I work on and with. Um, so this you know this episode is kind of near and dear to my heart as uh, that is not only what allows me to buy food and other video games, um, but it's also something that I interact and use with 
uh, use every day in, in terms of you know digital distribution of games and I like I like your hierarchy <laughs> of important things in your life food then video games <laughs> that's probably all you need uh, right and then at some point <laughs> gotta support the family yeah <laughs> to answer your question of how I got into it uh, it really actually resulted from you know the statement that I said earlier where QA engineers are good at breaking things um, I was working in a non-technical role at a small startup and uh, I kept breaking the production software, this, you know, the stuff that we sent out to our customers. Uh, and there's a manager that was like, you're really good at making this stuff not work. Do you want to be on the QA team? Um, <laughs> I was like, sure. Uh, so a couple years later, taught myself code, kind of, you know, worked up the, the QA ladder of figuring out how, how to write test cases, how to write automation code, how to make computers run test cases for me. Uh, because at our core, every engineer is just a lazy person. And uh, a couple months ago, I uh, had a buddy said that there was an opening um, at Sony Interactive working on PlayStation and said, hey, that's way more interesting than what I'm currently doing because you know, video games are such kind of a, an important part of my life. Um, so I jumped on the opportunity to interview there. Uh, they hired me and now I help get video games to people. Very cool. Right on, man. How are you enjoying it? You just started there relatively recently, but you you enjoying your time there so far? Yeah, it's a blast. Um, really, you know, it's really good work culture, and uh, you definitely get the sense of like we make cool shit. You know, we we make games, we make platforms for games. We are gaming culture. Um, you know, FIFA 18 is coming out next week, and I'm not a huge uh, sports game player, uh, but we had a launch event for it, and you get to go hang out, and uh, you know, basically you and your coworkers drink a bunch of beer and play video games for a while. Did the same thing hey, with like Alex, Destiny Alex, 2. Now that HR has gotten bored and stopped listening, you can tell us how you really feel about it. <laughs> oh, God, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I uh, really enjoy it there. Um, I'm having a great time so far. Right on, man. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Let's jump right into our topic, which is uh, something, like you said, is an area that you have some expertise in working on the PlayStation storefront. But we're, today we're talking about digital media and the digital distribution of video games. And uh, Jared, tell us where this all started. Yeah, when we first started like throwing this idea around I wasn't sure how much there would be to talk about in the history of it but the more research I did and more research that uh, that you compiled it, I was impressed of how far back this stuff actually goes I was not expecting to find anything until essentially like the advent of the internet or like the early consumer adoption of the internet yeah this predates but, dude, it goes, like it goes back way further totally yeah like one of the first documented instances of this this type of digital media distribution was for the intellivision it came out in 1979 by mattel electronics it was a home video game console and about a year later, they released a peripheral. Some people may be familiar with that topic from our previous episode. Whoa, good throwback. Yep, yep. Uh, called the Play Cable. And it was a cartridge. You plugged it into the Intellivision. And you would have to pay your cable company a monthly fee to basically get access to a cycling library of video games that, would, that they would have. And you would download them through your cable connection to your your play cable and in television and you would play them there this happened in 1980 that's insane now that was that through 
what kind of that was through a coaxial cable that it hooked in or what kind of cable was it yeah i think it 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 was a coaxial connection on the play cable peripheral which plugged into the intellivision my mind was my mind is honestly like blown so like not only about, are they like are stuff. they distributing digital media over whatever primitive version of networking this is but they're also introducing a like a monthly fee like subscription business model for this this thing you know like ea access where you pay and you get you get free games every month or playstation network you get the you get your ps plus games uh they were doing it you know that's that's pretty intense yeah um this is this is like this predates the internet which is crazy because like before this time this idea of you know transmitting data over uh cable lines or telephone lines was like it, it it was used for like two things, like distributing video games and launching nuclear weapons. Those are like the two things it got used for. It's crazy that like video games were in on the ground floor of, you know, what's essentially a tool that we all use every day now. I, I think it's uh, shocking that that is actually one of the few aspects of the internet that wasn't driven by porn first. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I forgot porn. We didn't do our research video on Video games, that, nuclear yeah. weapons, and porn. And <laughs> probably mostly porn. I'm sure there's some kind of like Usenet thing that predates this of people sharing their, their Playboy articles. Yeah, you just have to wait like half an hour for a picture to load. <laughs> I just like it for the articles. I mean, just thinking about this <laughs> from like 1980 though, uh, if you remember like in the early 90s or even into the late 90s, depending on when you know people upgraded internet connections and you'd be in the middle of downloading a song off you know Napster or something and you know, your mom would pick up the phone and the connection would cut off. Uh, imagine doing that with a video game in the 1980s. It's like, you know, hey, I need to call Aunt Shelly. It's like, no, Mom, I'm downloading Pac-Man. <laughs> well, yeah, and this one was over. This one was over cable. The next one we're going to talk about the game line, which was for the Atari 2600. This one actually went over your phone line. And yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I used to jam on um, Myth 2, the video game Myth 2 made by Bungie back in, had to have been late 90s. Oh, that was oh yeah. Oh, yeah. An amazing game. And I, I I'm sure I DC'd from many a game because we got a phone call or my one of my parents had to make a phone call something like that. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the game line came out for the Atari in 1980, and uh, sort of that same year that the, the the play cable came out, and it was a similar thing. Cartridge it plugged into the the Atari, and then um, you would use your phone line to connect it. You know, just like you would for uh, a modem, and you could you could even rent video games you could rent and download video games i think that was the only thing it did i don't think it downloaded anything permanently it was like you would you would get sort of a light a five to ten day license for a game and that was all you could play it for yeah like whatever small amount of storage they had on there you would you'd have access to it like I'm, I'm interested to know how they controlled that how they enforced that people you know just instead of like dumping that onto a more permanent i don't know i guess people probably didn't care at the time yeah i don't know that people had access you know like good ways to extract data from the the cartridges unless you had a real sort of like advanced setup because it's not like today where it goes onto some sort of hard drive and you can move that hard drive over to another computer it was that proprietary atari cartridge connector that's how it connected to your system and it wasn't just a way of transmitting data like this is just like the the play cable this was a full-on service that that they were offering uh owners would receive free games on their birthday you could upload scores and compete in online high score tournaments with other players like that. I don't know. Like it just blows my mind because I probably didn't have actual internet until I was, I don't know, like eight years old or so. 
Yeah, somewhere uh, around, I think, well, like, yeah. 95, and, 96. Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's it's crazy. Uh, apparently, all the games yeah. were third-party tiles, and the catalog is now controlled by Activision, so maybe, yeah, maybe so we could those, be expecting games... an HD remake of some of oh, those. Oh, yeah. Oh, sweet, man. That sounds real <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the quality of the games. They were, so all the titles were only available through the play cable. You couldn't, like, go to the store and buy a cart with any of those games on it. Um, but yeah, I'm really curious about the the quality of those games. Like, if any of our if any of our listeners had one of these products, please write in because I'm curious to know what your experience was with these peripherals or with these um, online attachments. Because I'm fascinated by this. Once once I started doing this research, my my mind was blown. And the cool thing about this cartridge is it, it essentially was a modem, and the the company that made it for the Atari 2600 eventually became the company that created America Online using that modem technology. So, very impressive. You know, I, for a lot of us, for a lot of us especially people our age, AOL was the the first experience that we had with the internet. And it started here, man. This is where this is where it started was specifically for transmitting video games. I'm not much of a collector of of anything as we'll we'll quickly discover as we talk about digital media, but uh, I would love to get my hands on some of this hardware because that that stuff is just so cool and i feel like probably rare enough where it's probably kind of expensive i don't think you could get this hardware and use it i don't think you could get the game line and actually do anything with oh it i don't unless I, of course unless someone's like hosting a server somewhere some kind of yeah <laughs> legacy server there's always a yeah, way that'd be in case you want to play pong there must be yeah there there must be a way but it's got to be a wacky workaround that, that's super cool now, before we get too much further into our discussion of digital distribution and digital media, let's talk about how we define it. Like, let, let's sort of set the terms of, of our discussion so that we're all on the same page and all using the same terminology here. So, Alex, when you think about digital distribution, what does that mean to you? Any product that is offered for consumption via digital means such as you know the internet with no required physical products other than the platform which that media is played on. Is that a corporate approved definition? <laughs> uh, no, that is the, I, I work in engineering and non-specific definitions bother me and lead to broken systems. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think the important part of that is the fact that it is distributed to you over the internet. Because I think when we talk about, you know, this like digital media, I mean, I think for the most part, all video games could be defined as digital media. I mean, like yeah, if you get a CD and you... DVDs and stuff and Blu-ray. Yeah. But when we're talking about digital distribution, we're, we're talking specifically about the content being delivered over the internet with no need for like a, a, a physical copy of something to be in your possession. I, is that good? Are we yeah, no, all square I, on that? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Okay, so here's my here's my next question and this is where it might get a little trickier for us in this discussion, but do you guys think there's such a thing as physical media anymore? Uh with with most games now sort of requiring day one patches or additional content to be downloaded once you put it you know, even if you buy a disc, if you put the disc in, it still has to in some cases download more content even if it's not strictly a patch. Um does does physical media truly exist? Uh, as as far as video games go, probably yes and no. Um, you know, obviously you can still buy vinyl records. People still really like vinyls. People still buy CDs somewhat. Uh, that's still a thing. You know, there 
there's some DRM on CDs, but for the most part, you play you pl- pretty much plug it into any CD player and it'll play music. So I don't know. I mean, with some video games like the Switch, for for example, it's a for the, for all intents and purposes, it's a portable console, and you can get cartridges which plug into it, and you have the whole game there minus the patches that may come out for it. Or you can just go on to the Nintendo store and, and buy everything and download them straight to your, your SD card, which is the way I want to do it. I don't want to carry on a well, bunch of cartridges. Well, so here's here's the thing is you, you brought up the Switch. The Switch itself, a lot of times the full game doesn't fit on the the cartridge that you're plugging into the console. Is, um, is that true? Yeah, so there's there was a story that came out recently, within the past month at least, that Nintendo was allowing developers and publishers to choose the size of the cartridges that they were using for the Switch console, meaning that they could pick like what size storage was inside that cartridge. Now, the larger the storage in that cartridge, the more expensive it was to produce. So... This whole story came out because NBA 2K18, it was found out that the entire game could fit on one of the larger Switch cartridges, but... They chose to go with the the, cheaper production. Yeah, because the publisher wanted to save money, they put a sort of diminished version of the game on the cartridge and then requires the user to download the rest of it in order to have access to all of the features. What is even the point? Like, why? Well, I mean, I understand why they did it, but the whole debate of physical versus digital media kind of goes out the window if you're buying the thing and then have to download the other half of it. Yeah, it's weird. And that's why that's why I think, is there such a thing as physical media anymore? Of course, you can still go to the store and buy a, a, a video game disc. But I, I'm wondering like maybe if a better term for the, the state of video games now is is maybe something along the lines of like hybrid media. This idea that that you get a portion of the game in the physical form and then for most intents and purposes, have to download the the rest of it. I would say that the majority of video games today, you can go and buy the disc and keep your console offline and you can play it any day from now till the end of time, as long as that console lasts. I would say a majority are still on that. While we're seeing some games require an internet connection and go another direction, I think that that's a little bit different of a conversation where with that Nintendo Switch cartridge that doesn't hold the entire game how long is EA going to keep those servers running where you can download the other half of the game? Eventually, you're just going to have a useless cartridge, right? Because they, they're not going to keep that online forever. So then you're just going to have a cartridge with that's not going to work in 50 years or whatever it may be. I, I, think, I think in those like those smaller cartridges, Nintendo has said that you'll you'll have access to certain features in those games. So you might be able to put the cartridge in and play a basketball game, but you're not going to have access maybe to all the teams or all the different game modes or the career mode or all of those things, but I think you will still be able to play some small portion of the game. I think the definition of physical media that we're getting at here is kind of going the way, you know, to use an allegory of uh, the manual transmission car. It's definitely still possible. And, you know, as Jared pointed out, you can turn your console offline mode and still be able to play games, especially, you know, some smaller, more indie games that you would be able to go to GameStop uh, or something and pick up. But at least what I've seen for the past, several years at a minimum is most of the AAA titles that are selling, you know, millions upon millions of copies are requiring internet connections. Um, So I think at at some point uh, we will see kind of everything be internet required and the offline single player will be an available option, but a more expensive and hard to find option. 
the one thing I wanted to say before it seemed like we were beating up on the Switch too much is it's funny because the Switch chose to use cartridges, but really they're just following the same game model that companies like Microsoft and Sony have been using for a long time. It just happens to be with cartridges instead of CDs that you have to download the the updates for the game or the remainder of the game. So I think there were a lot of people that were upset, but I don't know that it's you necessarily have to be upset at that. That's just sort of the way things are now. Progress will continue, and I definitely understand why people want physical media. But as far as like the Switch specifically goes, I bought that game. I bought that when I was able to find one, and then I went out and bought the biggest micro SD card I could find. And I will never buy a cartridge for that. They're, like I'm not going to hang on to cartridges, carry them with me if I take it traveling. Uh, that is 100% going to be a, a digital platform for well, me. You're not going to be able to get sense. that sweet game carrying case, though. Oh, I got I got my third party carrying <laughs> case. You remember, that, uh, like it does just fine. The the Nintendo the Game Boy Color days. Like I I had a carrying case for the Game Boy Color that had slots for like five or six games that you could just open it up and it was it's like the the nerdiest middle school like planner thing ever for gaming. Uh, yeah, but God, I love that thing. Yeah, I I'm, I think I had one for the OG Game Boy. Yeah, that was the sign that you were like pimping it in grade school, dude. When you had a fucking carrying case for your uh, your handheld console, you were balling out of control. I may not be walking into the club and making it rain, but I'm going wherever I want and making a game. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Oh my gosh! You are going to be a dad soon. You are you are practiced and ready for that, sir. I I'm trying to build up the uh, the backlog of dad jokes so I can just unleash them throughout you know my my future daughter's life. What was the first game you guys remember playing that you got uh, through digital distribution? Uh, Jared, I'll ask you first. What 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 was your first experience with uh, getting a game this way? I think it was Left for Dead. I'm pretty sure it was Left for Dead, and um, you know maybe that I don't know. Uh, that's like my first Steam experience. I might have gotten um, other games like that before through you know like uh, good old games or another download service, Humble something. No, Humble wasn't around. I don't know. It was probably it was probably Left for Dead because I, I I used to like my physical media. And then I'm pretty sure people can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the retail copy of Left 4 Dead just came with a Steam code inside the box. So I don't think I had hmm. a choice. So I think I'm pretty sure that was around this time that I was just like, well, I guess everything is now going to be on, on the internets. And then I just, I gave in really quickly because I was like, oh, it's awesome. Now I, now I have everything in one spot. And uh, I jumped on that Steam train early as I could. And what about you, Alex? What was your first experience with downloading a video game? I'm... Pretty sure it was Team Fortress 2. Uh, two two Steam games. Yeah, which is also a Steam game. Um, I think that would have been like 2006 or 2007. It was, it was when I was in college. And I think at that point I still had uh, the original Xbox. Um, and I was, you know, any Xbox games that I was buying, I was just going to whatever game store was around and buying a physical copy and it was before Steam even made made itself available natively for OS X. Uh, I actually partitioned my hard drive and put uh, a Windows distribution on it so I could download and play Team Fortress. You were a uh, early OS uh, Mac OS gamer, huh? Uh, it was 
I, I guess yes, and I'm not sure it was entirely by choice. Now I've I've been running on Mac platforms for so long. I love the the laptops, um, but when I was growing up, my parents had an Apple tiny little cube Mac OS. Probably had like a two inch by two inch screen. You know something that I could play Oregon Trail on. And then, you know, when I went to college and being poor, uh, you know, my parents bought me a Mac and that was just kind of the platform that I had. So it turned yeah, Steve, into Steve and I, making do. When I was growing up, I didn't really have a computer that would run games. I used to go over to Steve's house and his his parents had all, all Macs. And I remember yeah, we, 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 would, family. we would uh, we would play Myth 2 on, on uh, LAN. On yeah, LAN IMAX. We would LAN up the IMAX. And Unreal house. Tournament. Yeah, Unreal Tournament. Throw in some uh, marathon. Ooh, it's good yeah, times. a little bit, of, little bit of marathon. Some good uh, bungee throwback titles there. I did. Uh, I had a friend who was... At, I, I wish I remembered what his dad did because they had they had two computers in their house when I was in elementary school, which was like mind-blowing. You're like, what, two computers? What, what are you even doing with your life right now? Um, well, considering the computers back then were like the equivalent of like $5,000 machine. Yeah. It's, I mean, they, they basically had the, the equivalent of 19 cars in you know, their living room. Um, <laughs> or 19 cars worth of expense. Uh, now, on but, those early Mac games, did those, I guess they, those must have been physical physical discs, right? Or where, where, where did you buy Mac games back then? Um, there used to be like Apple specific stores, and this is I don't this know is before I, the I, Apple I don't store. Remember. Yeah, before the Apple store, there were there were like these specialty stores. It was like just for for Mac owners. You know, I don't remember. I wasn't the one making the purchases back in those days because I was a little, I was a wee little child, and my parents were the ones making those purchases. So <laughs> I don't remember exactly where where uh, all those games came from. It wasn't over the fifty six k though. No, no, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, my my earliest experience with like digitally distributed games—that sounded weird. Digitally distributed games. There we go. I put the emphasis in the wrong syllable. Um, <laughs> syllable. I see. I remember being in like fourth or fifth grade when you know, like people were just starting to get the internet in their homes and realizing that you could like you could go to the website for like any product that you liked. Oh, I like I like crayons. I'm I'm in fourth grade. I love crayons. Let's go to Crayola's website, and you'd go to their website, and they'd have like a you know a shitty flash game or something up that you could play, and that's sort of like my really like my earliest memory of having a game delivered to me over the internet. Now, I don't know if that sort of meets the requirements of our definition of this stuff, but those are like my earliest memories of it. And then Counter Strike Source, I played Counter Strike Source, another Steam game. So it's kind of funny that a lot of our early memories of uh, digital distribution are from Steam, um, but I guess that goes to show like how prolific that platform has been in this space. Yeah, because they were the first, as far as I know, to require it for Half Life Two. So you couldn't, you had to get it, and then they started selling other games on Steam. Did they? I feel like I see, and I could be incorrect in this, but I feel like I bought a physical copy of Half Life Two. Oh, you did. I'm sure you did. I'm but, okay, but you had to install Steam. It was. You had to for run the, Steam. For the DRM. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. And uh, yeah, so here we are today. It's the probably the single biggest digital store uh, outside of Amazon. And uh, I have a Steam library of over 250 games now in that short time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I was, you know, when I got Team Fortress 2 and I was fondly recalling back in the days when my Steam library was about five games and I naively thought I'd have time to play them all. 
yeah, I, I I lose track of things that I've I've already purchased. I guess that's I don't know. Do you want to do you already want to jump into like some of the pros and cons of this? Because well, I, I, I guess thoughts. before we get to that, because I think I think this will lead us into that discussion. But what do you guys prefer, Alex? Like when you're buying a video game, do you prefer to buy a physical copy or a digital copy, and and why? I mean, currently I'm I'm a hundred percent on the digital copy train. Um, Okay. Like most of it boils down to, uh, you know, convenience for me. Um, you know, I've, I've got a wife and three animals and, a you know, full-time job and all of these, like keeping the house up and running errands that I have to do more or less continually. And it's just, you know, a, as I get older, it's become, do you, do you live in a spaceship? Yes. <laughs> uh, the spaceship California. Uh, yeah. Um, That's the most expensive spaceship I hear. Uh, you've t- the barrier to entry. Well, you're in, the, you're in the Bay Area. So, like, every time you buy a physical DVD or Blu-ray, like, that's like a $10 a month of your, your space that you're renting to live in that takes up. As I get older, it's just becoming harder and harder to find the time that I want or the time that I need to, you know, go out and actually browse through, like, a physical game library. Um, so, you know... One of the nice things with working in an internet company and spending all of my time on the internet uh, and you know getting that sweet monitor tan going uh, is that I've if I have a couple down couple minutes of downtime at work I can you know browse through like the PlayStation Store Steam and just select something hit buy and start start downloading on my PlayStation at home and then when I get home uh, if I've got some game time it's already there it's already installed I don't have to do anything else I just turn it on and go. Uh, and that's super convenient. Right on, Jared. How about you? What do you prefer? I kind of kind of touched on it a little bit, but yeah, I I am one hundred percent digital in everything that I buy now. All all media consumption, all my movies, all my music. I don't even buy music anymore. I just I have a Google Play subscription, uh, and that has pretty much every piece of music that I'd want to listen to. And uh, what else? Steam is obviously my platform of choice because it's just where everything is. It's it's nice. I couldn't imagine living in California and storing the 250 games somewhere that I have in my Steam library. So I, I jumped ship from physical media a long time ago. The, the closest I ever got to collecting anything was, you know, back in high school, I, I had a bunch of CDs and I, I ended up following your lead, Steve, and, and taking them all out of the cases anyways and putting them into like a big CD wallet. So even then, I was just kind of trying to minimize the physical impact on of all that all that media that I had. So yeah, See, I've gone I've gone back on that. See now all I I put all my CDs back in their cases. Yeah, I, I don't know. You're you're a crazy person. I don't know why why you deal with that. Because you used to, I mean I like it. Walking you, I like since then, but you used to have like just an entire sh- part of your house that was just walls of, of DVDs and Blu-rays. I don't know, man. It it I enjoy it. I enjoy being able to look uh look upon my collection of movies and CDs and video games, um, and, and browse and pick the one that I want and display it in my home. There's a um, ah, it's a quote from John Hodgman. Um, if anyone's ever listened to his podcasts, but I I think it's John Hodgman. But he says like the difference between a hoarder and a collector is a display case, yeah. and I definitely feel like that. <laughs> Like I, there's definitely times where I'm like, man, why do I keep all this stuff? But then because your dad did, I remember seeing your dad's insane collection of he had yeah. like entire dresser drawers full of well, CDs. Yeah, and, and then that and then that comes from his mother, who was uh, 
an actual hoarder. <laughs> like a, just, a real, just, or, he organized a it. real legitimate <laughs> yeah. hoarder, not one of those fake hoarders. Well, yeah. And what I mean when I say legitimate hoarder, I mean like it, it was it was bad. I, I have, Your dad was like, like it, well, this it, is crazy. I know a I just couple have to of buy those furniture to put this in, and it makes yeah. it okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's genetic, I guess. That's right. <laughs> That's where I get it from. So I guess you know, weirdly, the the one thing that I still uh, absolutely prefer to collect physical media on is books, and it's like so far outside of my digital habits for everything else. You know, like Jared, I have Spotify subscription. I don't buy CDs. Mm-hmm. I download all my games. I download or. At this point, I just rent movies. I don't even buy movies anymore. See, I think books still have a value to them, especially a hardcover book. Is it's just a nice feeling in your hand, like pe- yeah, thought, that, thought that went tactile in tactile experience. Yeah, thought went into the cover design of that. You know, like the material that it was made out of, what kind of font to print it on, what kind of paper. Like all that is great, yeah. and that is and so. That I, is one of the things that we definitely miss out on with uh, digital distribution of games right is not anymore like games don't even come with manuals anymore. yeah there's like, there's you no don't even get like the cool art or anything like there's that. no manuals there's getting, no art books yeah i used to get like posters with my nintendo 64 games uh now it's just you get like a slip of paper and an advertisement for something probably and then that's it yeah but there is i mean there is one experience that i think you guys are overlooking a little bit with buying physical media and that's the experience of actually going to a store and shopping that is the and worst. I, and I know that's the worst part of it. No, see, okay. You have see, to, sorry, I'm I, I knew you were going to say that. that. <laughs> you have to talk to people, guys, Steven. No, you don't. I mean, you don't technically have to talk to anyone. Not, not <laughs> but technically, that, but they'll that, come that, up and they'll talk to you. Yeah, human interaction. Gross. Get that away from me. <laughs> I mean, I, at least speaking for myself, that's something that I still enjoy. I still like going to a Best Buy or into a, a, a GameStop and walking around and... and like you're saying, looking at the, the covers for the video games and asking, you know, being able to ask someone a question about a video game or, or have a quick, even if it's just a short conversation as I'm checking out at one of these places, but talking to a guy who, who's excited for the next, you know, the, the announcement of the next Bloodborne video game. Um, those, those are experiences that I still value. Now, I don't, okay. how important are those for our, you know, for society? I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, if we, if we, kill the brick and mortar establishments we're, we're all going to end up like the movie wally sitting in our chairs staring at screens it's but just another thing Millennials something that I, I i personally still like to do you know i still like to go to a store and and walk around in it the last time i went to a GameStop was to buy final fantasy 15 because i didn't want to wait for the playstation stores download speeds to get done three days from now uh, oh snap alex i'm putting you on blast <laughs> um, I know I'll see coming. what I can do to slow that down further for you. <laughs> but you know, I, I knew what I was in there for. I had there was one person behind the counter, and maybe like five people in line in front of me. So it took me a while to get up there. But that was because every single person they're trying to sell like five magazine subscriptions to, and a warranty, and a, a GameStop membership card. And I'm just that's terrible experience. I don't know what you get out of that that makes that a better experience than. I'm going to buy this on Steam if I could for Final Fantasy 15. And I don't have to talk to anybody. I hate that. Like, it's just like the worst thing ever going into a GameStop these days. So sorry to blow our GameStop sponsorship. It'll never happen. <laughs> uh, it was just, it was, it was, it was worse experience than I remembered from when I, my, I used to go to Funko Land uh, back in the day and uh, never again. Yeah. I mean, you can see that they're feeling the pressures of this 
digital future. Absolutely. Right? Like they're they're no longer necessarily interested in just selling you video games, but now they have to sell you services and subscriptions and get you signed up for pre-orders and stuff like that. And that's all a direct response to being able to buy games online. They they are I walked into a GameStop kind of like a week ago. I, you know, I was. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I was in a mall. I, I was bored. Uh, there was nothing else to do. Uh, my my wife was on her like fifth store looking at blouses or something. Did you have a nightmare experience like Jared explained earlier? Uh, was, did it ruin Did it ruin your life? I had to. T- <laughs> I, I had to get over it. Yeah, I, I tried to completely avoid any human interaction. But uh, what I did notice is that the the GameStop stores now are currently like. 50 to 60% of their space uh, is actually devoted to gaming related toys, memorabilia, yeah, and collectibles. Yeah, toys. They've, yep, they've become a toy yeah, store more than a, a video very, game store, for sure. Very little in the way of actual video game product anymore. And much more like, you know, hey, we heard you like Pokemon. Would you like to come see our Pokemons? I, yeah. I'm not going to like poo-poo over a business trying to stay afloat in a changing, you know, no, I mean, I, I think they're doing the best response that they can. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's just it's not a better experience than me being able to download it at home or downloading it from, you know, buying it on my phone and it's ready by the time I get home from work or something. Like, that's just a superior experience in almost every way for me. To go back to, I guess, the original question is, what do you prefer, digital or physical media? I'm, I'm sort of agnostic in that in that discussion. Like, I, I will download a game. Like, I, I recently repurchased Minecraft for PlayStation 4. And I downloaded that, even though physical copies for that game are available. Um, you know, when I do my, when I game on PC, most of the time I buy digital copies of PC games because it, there's not really stores that sell physical copies of PC games anymore. I do buy a lot of my console video games in physical form. Part of that is because, especially for games that have sort of finite lifespans, games like Doom and Bloodborne, both which I finished recently, once I finish those games, I'm done with them, and I can I can get the uh, the trade in value for those to help me purchase the next game I want to play, which I think I, I traded them in for put money down on Destiny Two. Yeah, I so mean, I, it I, is I don't nice I don't have like a str- return them. Yeah, I mean that's that's a big part I think of why a lot of people still buy the physical media. But yeah, so in, you know in in these discussions, I don't have anything. I have nothing against digital distribution or that stuff. I just I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other, and I I sort of I see the the pros and cons of like rushing towards an all digital future. I'm a, a type of gamer that I like to buy a lot of games, especially super popular games on day one. Cause I want to be a part of like that discovery and that discussion about a new game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to have to deal with like the pre-order aspect of that. But if I want to go and get a physical copy, like, you know, your local store is going to run out of it probably because they always do. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to pre-order it because I, I just think it's ridiculous in 2017 to pre-order a game. So the fact that I can just download it the day of, briefly look up, make sure it's not broken in some tragic way, you know, from people who've already started playing it before me and, and just have it there. That's, that's, that's great, too. If you want to be on the, you know, the pre-order hype train, you can pre-order the digital version of the game and get, you know, the same, I don't know, bonus weapon skin or change your horse mount Stop to it. like a flaming unicorn or whatever. Stop it. Nobody. Um, Nobody should ever pre-order anything no, digitally ever. I am avidly against pre-orders uh, because I think it in, it encourages bad developer behavior. Um, but you know, the counter argument to your point is you don't actually have to go into the physical, you know, to the store and get the physical copy for the pre-order. You can do that online and still have it download day one. 
Like, I really want a SNES Classic, but I wasn't about to get up at 6 in the morning and go stand in line for one. If they eventually become available when I can just walk in because I'm out doing something else, then yeah, I'll get one. But uh, I missed the pre-order for them on, on, on whatever two-second window that they had for them. And so now I'm just like, well, whatever. Like They, they said they're going to make more of them, and hopefully someday I can be in a part of that. <laughs> but now, I was is that something about you would to, like, prefer to have? Like, Would you prefer to have the SNES Classic, or would you prefer to have that in like a digital format on your Switch? I think I mean I'm asking the question already knowing your answer, but yeah, I mean it's it's a novelty item, you know. It's I want to hold that 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 Super Nintendo controller again. I don't have I don't wait have Super you Nintendo. wait so you do you see <laughs> the the value of a physical version of something? Yeah, but that's like a tactile feel of the controller, like the shape of the of the console itself. It's nostalgic. Uh, getting a disc for a new game that has no value. For I am completely okay I with gotcha. getting all of the SNES games or the classic Nintendo games emulated on a different platform. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's a cool thing. I never liked that controller to begin with anyway, though, so. Dang. Yeah, that's, that's, that is shots fired. <laughs> yeah. I have to throw out some fighting words at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you're, you're just trying to like stir up a war between Sony and Nintendo right now, like a uh, like an actual physical console war. <laughs> yeah, we're we're gonna start launching consoles out of missile tubes at each other's offices. Nintendo fired uh, a missile over the headquarters of Sony in Japan this morning. <laughs> no, this was not North Korea. Uh, so I guess what are um what are some of the other benefits that you guys see to moving towards a you know, an all digital future. What are, what are some good things that digital distribution has done for the video game industry and game design? I mean, 90% of the reason I have t- over 250 Steam games in my library is because of Steam sales. They have been able to sell me games, some of which have only been out for a month at fractions of the cost of a, of a full price game. And they bundled stuff together where I got like 12 games, 20 games at once like the Lucas Arts collection and it's just insane like I just I barely paid any money for those games and I and now I have them forever well until Steam goes away we'll see what happens there but I mean so they of- are able to cut costs because they don't have you know that overhead of of producing a physical uh physical disc or physical cartridge or whatever and so they can sell things at a cheaper price and they often do and like especially if you I have such a big backlog now. I can wait for some games um, that I don't mind waiting for, and they'll be thirty percent off within the year. You know, that's it, a it's a great savings. It's it's kind of hard to find when you're shopping for physical media unless you're buying used. I, th- I think you know one of and one of the topics that you guys uh, love to talk about on the show is digital distribution has so incredibly enabled the indie game market. One yes. of my favorite indie games, Journey. It's like a two to three hour playthrough art game it's it's a piece of art and that game if we still relied completely on a physical distribution model of the developer producing the game having to go to a publisher get a publishing agreement get a distribution agreement uh you know press and print all of the game discs and the packaging and do the marketing because you know the publisher wants a return on their investment a game like journey would have never been made uh yeah that's like exponentially more expensive to do yeah and I think there's I think there's like a mentality that happens when you put a game on a disc that it's going to have a certain you know it's going to play for a certain length of time, you know, like if you buy a disc it's going to be a, an 8-hour experience. And I think that you know a game like Journey or um 
or any of these other like sort of shorter experiences, like you're saying, Alex, just would never have happened. They would never have pressed a game like that onto a disc unless maybe it was part of some like bigger collection of games that got put together. But yeah, yeah, so, indie game I mean, space is something that flourished in this in this digital landscape. That, like, uh, like something that like emerged. Proteus, that would never have been yeah. something that you would just no. pick up off the shelf. Proteus, Absolutely Journey, not. Super Meat Boy, uh, Minecraft, even to a huge extent, probably would have never became yeah. the sensation that it was. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, for like, sure. We And we just recently, on our Twitter account, tweeted out a recommendation that people check out the movie, Indie Game the Movie. It's a documentary from a few years back. But they... Yeah, I've seen that. They followed a, a couple of indie developers and in that movie one of the developers was Edmund McMillan the guy who made Super Meat Boy and you can see in that documentary how important digital distribution was to the success of that game like how critical it was that that game got put on the uh, Xbox Live storefront and got advertised that way and uh, I mean it's, it's, it's neat you know here we are years after and everyone knows the Edmund McMillan story like the guy's a I'm pretty sure he's a millionaire now because of the huge success of that game but you get to see him in that moment when the game launches uh, had, I mean it had a little bit of struggles right at the start but it launches and then he gets like the phone call the next day that like hey dude you're a millionaire now yeah, like that's really cool congratulations you made something awesome that would have not been possible 10 years ago yeah you know, it, it makes me also think of one of the other indie games that I really enjoyed which was Firewatch which was another four or five hour long more of a, a meditation experience as a game rather than uh a strict you know game in the traditional sense or a game in the the way that you know something like ea uh or activision will push out iteration after iteration of you know fifa or call of duty or something now that's another game that's dangerous to mention these days firewatch because of yeah. what, their drm thing or their their, yeah. their dmca takedowns yeah, PewDiePie. Yeah, it's I. I guess I get his appeal to you know like fourteen year old me, which still thought uh, every other sentence being a dick or a fart joke was the best thing on the planet. I I, I have nothing wrong. I, I I don't have anything against PewDiePie's sense of humor. I I don't really. I mean, I don't care for it. I've never subscribed to his channel or anything. But the dude's. I mean, especially with like recent events, he's just a piece of shit. Oh yeah. Oops. He's I just, I he, accidentally he just... put on a KKK hood. <laughs> yeah. Like now he embodies like the worst aspects of the video game community and we all want this this thing that we love to be considered an art form and like in in a couple of months he has like reduced it to being again like a, a headline child, a, a child's headline pursuit the, yeah well you know it's 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 like the the entire gamergate thing version two uh it's just there's yeah it seems like you know gaming as an industry can't get away from always having that one asshole who has to go and wreck everything for everybody. You know, it's they don't show up with the ball and then get upset and take their ball home. They show up at the park. You know, they light the park on fire. They you know blow up the ball with dynamite. Uh, they pee on your dog and then they leave. And it's like, what? Why do you have to do that? Um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to like. I didn't mean to go down this rabbit hole. I just. So what it's you're saying, like, Steve, is digital media yeah. has given rise to neo <laughs> That's what, what yep. I see yep. where you're going. Okay. No, yeah. I, I, again, I, d- I didn't want to go like too far down that hole. I just something I feel passionately about. So I wanted to like, I guess, briefly touch on it while it's still somewhat relevant. One of the other indie games fuck that, guy. that I that I definitely wanted to bring up with that uh, was very much made possible by digital distribution. Uh, it was this game called Never Alone. 
Kasima Ingachuana. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, it's it's a game that was uh, made by a Canadian dev studio uh, in collaboration with a couple of the Inuit tribes. Um, you know the the indigenous Inuit tribes. Oh, I did play this game. That's the one with like the little wolf companion. Yeah, it's it's your uh, you play as a young Inuit girl uh, who gets you know her, her village gets burned down by the evil bad guy, and she picks up a, mm-hmm. a spirit fox to help her guide her on her quest to you know find the truth and redemption and peace and all these other things and um, yeah that was an interesting that was an interesting game because i remember they like interspersed the levels with um like full motion video of tribes people telling stories you know retelling these uh the mythology that was included in that game yeah and it was it was uh, just a fantastic experience and it's it's you know it's an educational experience you get to learn about you know the the oral history of this this tribe and you get to play through it and then also see it spoken and retold um and it's just another example of a, a game that would only be possible with a why do you think more that, effective why do you think that distribution that's, channel why do you think that could not have existed in a in a world without digital media distribution so i, I guess it's it's not a hard no that it wouldn't exist in a physical distribution only world um but it became uh, much more accessible and uh, able to have kind of a, a better production value and marketing value to kind of increase its appeal to people because of the digital distribution channels like Steam. Um, if you know, if you kept this one to a physical channel only, uh, it probably would have ended up as a government-funded arts project, and it most likely would have ended up only being available or only being visible in a museum somewhere in Canada where they had a computer set up to play this game. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's another component to it as well that is also not being brought up, which is the fact that you're playing as a non-white character in that game. And I think in the sort of old... I don't remember any games like this being made before digital distribution was available no, because I think, bigger I think a companies part of would be like, how do we, what is the risk of this, of making yeah. this? They, they would say our, our market, our primary market is North America and Europe. And if we need to print out yeah. and, a million and, copies and 18, of the game, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Are we going to... 18 to 25 year old white men are the, are the target audience. How are we going to sell them a story about... A uh, young, you know, Inuit a little girl. Yeah. So I, I think that the beyond just making indie games a little more accessible, this digital distribution model has allowed more opportunities for people of color or people from like marginalized areas to be featured in in games in way that they ways that they hadn't been beforehand. So I think I think I want to plug this real quick because uh, I I found it um, very interesting. But we recently had a, a talk at work uh, from the CEO of. A company called Girls Make Games, um, and they run. And it, it touches briefly in the subject, and also digital distribution. But uh, they run a summer camp uh, for girls ages eight to sixteen, uh, where they teach them over the course of a couple weeks to make games. They they do the artwork, they do the storyboarding, they do the set designs, uh, they do animations, uh, and then at the end of this camp, they they have a basically a competition and. The winner of the competition, uh, Girls Make Games, will then hire a full-time designer and coder and make a full game based off of these girls' kind of concept or skeleton games. Uh, and they release those on Steam. 
So you can actually go on Steam and you can look up Girls Make Games and you can play the catalog of games made by preteen to teenage girls. Uh, so that's, I mean, another fan, just great facet of this digital distribution is enabling groups like this uh, to exist and to produce content to get more people interested in video gaming. I think one of the other aspects of this that maybe we haven't really touched on is just the shelf space that it took to sell these games. You know, there's only GameStops are never that big. Most most video game retailers are not huge spaces. So having, you know, enough copies of the next biggest AAA game is more important than having a huge variety of, you know, less less AAA, less, you know, uh, popular games on the shelves. I know yeah, that when uh, Rock Band was a thing, uh, or the you know the early Guitar Hero retailers hated that stuff because it took up so much space on the shelves, and it was hard for them to to be able to keep that space you know filled, or it was just taking up so much space where they could put other stuff that would it would be a lot easier for them you know especially in big cities where I'm sure the brick and mortar stores are limited on their space, so um, it kind of ties that in. So now on things like steam for better or worse it's kind of the wild west you can put anything out there and steam isn't is no longer the only kid on the block uh especially for indies so it's uh, overall i mean i don't i don't think anyone's looking at this digital model and thinking it's it's bad for the future of video games no i don't think it's bad but i i think it presents some some issues so you talked about you know store shelf space i think one of the things that physical media allowed distributors to do was curate the the games that were for sale. Like if you walked into a store, you knew that a game you picked up off the shelf was going to be at least of like a you know, a certain level of quality. And as as cool as it is that you know we get all these like smaller experiences, these indie experiences, there are a lot of like really shady things that have started to creep in because it's become very difficult to curate the digital space, the digital marketplaces. I know there's like a certification process, there, at, yeah, le- at least I, for I, Xbox and, and Sony. And that's yeah, not I imagine there, Steam there has to be, right? Because well, you're also trying to well, so, hit a wide market. So you, you definitely want to make sure that there are you know, certain types of games which don't show up in your store. So Microsoft and Sony have been very protective of those things. And Steam has has tried to be as protective of that stuff as possible up until like recently, kind of though, because they did. Yeah. So the the green light, so the green light system on Steam was sort of their attempt to have the users of Steam sort of self police what was going to go up onto the store for sale. But that has become like a a whole quagmire situation. Yeah, people very itself. quickly started exploring. Yeah, I mean, that. last time I looked at it, Greenlight was kind of a mess. Yeah, and this is and this is sort of the heartbreaking thing because we can all look at the the good that digital distribution has done for indie games and you know and see the potential for the future of indie video games in that space. But then you get these like super shady companies that are um, that are doing this like asset flipping. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Oh, this is that term. this is something that I'd love to talk about. So part of I mean, part of uh, my background in engineering is doing a lot with mobile applications. And the mobile game storefronts are like infamous for how just shitty the games are that they just flip out. Uh, I mean, you know, you get like Farmville, Farmville 1, Farmville 2, Farmville 3, Farmville 17, Farm Simulator, Farm Manager, 
uh, goats on a farm simulator, thousands of clones of what was already kind of a crappy game, just like getting shoved out super fast with no thought behind them at all to try and capitalize on you know, making a quick buck using generic hot girl in advertising. Yeah, so this is hopefully it's not representative of the future and hopefully it doesn't hold back the positive progress of digital distribution. But it's one of these things where like we can't have nice things as video gamers because like someone comes along and ruins it. You get the you get these fucking assholes that just come in and are, are trying to cash in and then we have to start being more protective of these spaces and then that prevents a, a legitimate effort from someone to get through and then we're kind of like back to square one with you know trying to help these help indie developers and stuff get visible i don't know it's just I, I, I don't i just don't think that having everything accessible is that bad of a thing for consumers like i understand why steam might not want 500 versions of some crappy knockoff you know bloatware piece of crap software on their servers but as a consumer, like you have no reason to not be informed about the things that you buy. You can find a thousand sources for any one thing that you want to learn about, especially video games that you're, if you're just downloading random small 500 kilobyte games on steam, like what are you doing? Like you should know that like, that's not going to be a good experience. So I think so uh, that's, I mean, you that's... as a consumer, I think you can just look at that and be like, I am informed and that's why I'm buying. I'm not buying this. So this, I think this, there's this a, stuff another facet that goes in here, which uh, is, is the paradox of choice, which is also a, a book that was written about a decade ago by a guy named Barry Schwartz. And his overall argument is that curating and doing an approval process on the games and limiting the library can lead to better choices for the consumer, which I think there's something too, because, you know, I, I walk, I go on to Steam and I'm just, I, I'm not looking for anything particular. I'm just browsing, see if there's something, you know, interesting pops up and I'm bombarded by, you know, 40,000 different games. And it basically forces like a hard lock on your brain where you can't make a decision. You know, I was trying to buy a new sci-fi game the other day and I'm like, all right, there's Sins of a Solar Empire, there's Stellaris, there's uh, 50 other games, and I, I don't know which one I want to buy. So I ended to, like, up buying none like of them. Like a genre on Steam is just a nightmare. Like, there's, like, that's not the way to use that platform, unfortunately, because of the reasons that we've, we've talked about. You know, it's just like, oh, what is an action? I'm, I'm in the mood for some action. And you go there, and there's just like 500 games that came out yesterday that fall into this action category. You're like, what is even any of this? I mean, my primary source for information on, on new things is my friends, first of all. And then, you know, I'll start going into reviewers or whatever you want to call them, people whose job it is to talk about video games. And I, you know, I, I find people who have similar taste in me and I, I, that's how I make my purchasing decisions. I don't necessarily need Steam or Sony to make those decisions for me, but I, I do understand from their business perspective, why they didn't, they don't want, you know, yeah, stuff that no one's buying on. It's this. definitely going to be a, a careful balance point here, right? Between removing kind of the worthless cruft from your video game market, but also being an open enough platform that we do get something like a super meat boy or a firewatch or a journey that's able to kind of bubble up and really, you know, kind of capture attention where it otherwise wouldn't have made it. What are some, uh, I hate to do this now, but what are, what are some other, I guess, downsides to digital distribution that you can think of? Jared, what, what, you're the, you're a big uh, proponent of digital distribution, but what, 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 what do you hate about it? 
the future of it is really uncertain. Uh, Steam, as big and as as reliable as it has been for the most part over the years, it's going to go away someday. Whether that's in my lifetime or not, who knows? There's not really a defined course of action of what when something like that goes away, what happens to all that stuff that you've purchased. Now, some companies have started already writing this into their terms of service as you are not purchasing a product, you are subscribing to a service. So it's software as a service and not as a product that you own. So at any point, they could technically revoke your service to this game that you bought months ago or yesterday, doesn't matter. We'll see what happens when that eventually ends up in a court somewhere and, and a precedent is set for people who, who paid money for games. Like, for example, Players Unknown's Battlegrounds, a lot of people get banned for cheating in that game or whatever. Eventually, someone's going to get banned and they're not going to be able to play that game because there's no single player and they were wrongfully banned and they're going to sue the developer and that's going to go to court and it's going to set a precedent. And what that means for the future of software as a service is going to be uh, super questionable. So I know Steam has said if they were to ever go out of business, they would release all the DRM on all the games, but they can't enforce that for all the third-party games, so who knows? Uh, I think that is the biggest downside to digital media. I I feel like in a lot of ways, I mean in a lot, a lot of ways, the video game space, we're all living on the island of Tortuga, and like a lot of these things are allowed to just kind of skate things like you know, the the potential future for digital distribution. But even like we were talking about earlier with that, uh, the DMCA stuff, like I think a lot of people's fears with that is that it's going to establish some sort of precedent for video game streamers in the future. I feel like in a lot of cases, we as video gamers live in this space of like, okay, everyone just be cool, just be cool. Because as long as no one like really fucks up, there's not going to be like a legal <laughs> precedent set here. And we can just continue to like enjoy this hobby and this art. It's a powder keg, and I don't think it's yeah. it's necessarily limited to just video games. I mean, any any software, most t- software these days is is distributed digitally. You know, I can't even really go out and buy Adobe products anymore. You have to subscribe to them and pay a yearly fee. It's just, uh, you know, you don't really own any of this stuff, so it's a it's a problem. And for the time being, it's working out okay. But there's, uh, you know, I, I'm very wary of. Something in the future, what, what, what's going to happen when that stuff uh, goes awry? Now, how do you feel about people who don't have access to high-speed internet or people who have pretty strict data caps? Move. <laughs> no, I just... Yeah, that is that is a definite problem. Across the country, a lot of ISPs are, are starting to implement data caps. And some of them are as low as a terabyte. And What a, night- what a nightmare, man. It's, it's insane. Like... It, when a typical game these days is an 80 gigabyte download, I think I read somewhere like the Final Fantasy 15 download was going to be over 100 gigabytes. Well, yeah, so the original news for that was it was going to be 170 gigabytes. But then Square Enix came out and said that that number was misrepresented. Like it was, it was sure. an incorrect number. So I don't, I don't know if it's going to be 160 or what the actual download size for Sorry, it is. It was misrepresented. It's 170.2 gigabytes. Yeah, <laughs> but but there is that number may be 
very incorrect. But still, I mean, even 80 gigabytes, it's huge. That's a lot. And for some people who have slower internet, that's going to take them days to download. Uh, and then you add a data cap onto that. And all of a sudden, you're already at your data cap a quarter of the way through the month from downloading one game. Uh, yeah, I it, think it's got to help you important. if you want to play that game online. Yeah, I mean, and then your bandwidth, for if you're going to stream music or you want to stream Netflix, all that stuff adds up very quickly, you know, outside of just downloading I mean, what, to uh, your hard drive. An average 4K movie is like 200 gigabytes now. Yeah, and it's perhaps so like, it's a... Do you watch more than a, five movies a month? Say goodbye to your terabyte data cap. Maybe it's a it's a technological problem that we have to, or a hurdle that we have to overcome. It's not just an infrastructure thing. Like maybe we can make these ultra textures and compress them in ways that you know Silicon Valley fantasy middle out compression type thing, where we don't have to have eighty gigabyte games. But for the time being, uh, that's that's a reality of it. Games are getting better graphics. We everyone's buying four K TVs now. Uh, Netflix has some 4K stuff to stream. People are watching 4K on YouTube. It's just a, it's a big thing. Game developers have stopped caring about space. Um, totally. Because now they don't have to fit anything on a yeah, disc. Well, so they're just like, whatever. Like, why why compress this audio? Just it's just cheers. Storage 10 gigabytes has become compressed audio. Storage has become so cheap, right? Uh, I mean, I, I remember. So I bought my my first Xbox 360, and the the guy was like, yeah, there's like 250 megabytes of onboard storage um anyhow that's that's megabytes not gigabytes uh so i was like ah that's probably fine and then i got my first dlc and it was like we can't fit this um so i went out and i bought a 10 gigabyte hard drive that i you know attached to the top of the xbox i'm like this is going to be perfect i will never fill up a 10 gigabyte hard drive with games ever uh i got horizon zero dawn couple of weeks back and that was a 45 gigabyte download and that it's a problem for console developers or console console makers because increasing that storage price also i mean it does increase their overall price like if they're at a very hard 300 400 limit for their consoles uh increasing that storage is is gonna end up costing them more and as, as time goes forward but i mean i for the foreseeable future improving the infrastructure of our country, I think, is 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 the most positive outlook or the most positive outcome for this. Um, well, I also think I also think if just ISPs weren't such dicks, that yeah. might solve this problem also. So like, here's uh, where I'm going to get on my we, soapbox. We all have dreams, Steve. Uh-oh. We all have Uh-oh. dreams. Jared, Jared's climbing up on the soapbox. As I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, there's a new head of the FCC and he's trying to roll back protections that were put into place uh, years ago that would prevent ISPs from doing things like adding data caps and slowing and throttling their services, prevent them from selling it piecemeal and treating internet like a, like a, a commodity, like electricity. I don't know if a commodity or utility is the word. I think that is the only way forward is to treat it like a, is a common utility. Everybody needs internet for everything. And a rollback of those of those protections uh, would be absolutely detrimental to any kind of future or or progressive internet development as we go forward as a country and as a society. I think that we'd be left behind uh, by other countries who people, especially tech companies, will go elsewhere. So, I mean, you, if you you're a gamer, see... if you use the internet, please be informed about all the things going on in the world around you because it will affect you, especially when we're talking about stuff like bandwidth and 
the stuff that ISPs do. You think you think Time Warner and Cox and all that is bad now? Wait to, to see what happens when they have no no reins on them at all. Yeah, that's that's just the long way of saying what I just said. Don't just don't be a dick. Yeah, I mean it's happening. So <laughs> wanna, you know, right? to back up Jared's point, like we we've already seen this with Verizon, where they accepted something like twelve billion dollars to expand the FiOS network on the East Coast. It was a government fund. Hey, we want to bring high-speed internet access to more people. Here's twelve billion dollars. Go expand your FiOS network. Uh, Verizon says, "Okay, we'll do it." Fifteen years later, they haven't done it. They still have the twelve billion dollars. They have no plans to do it. And it's like, okay, so you took money to do something, never did it, never gave that money back. What the fuck? They're already operating on a very shady, shaky grounds. It, now is the time. Like, don't be silent about this. Right, write the FCC, write the write your representatives because it's a it's a big deal. And the internet, as we know, it could change. So, anyways, I'll step down off my soapbox. That's all I have to really say about that. Just be informed, dear. John McCain, I want to be able to download Final Fantasy 15. John McCain. <laughs> you know he's, he's going to be away very <laughs> concerned about your letter. Very concerned. Yeah. Um, For those of you yeah, that follow will, Arizona I will, politics. I will echo everything Jared just said. Stay informed. Don't let your our, our rights as citizens and as gamers and all that stuff slip away because um, it's getting chipped at, chipped at slowly, but that's how they get you. A little bit at a time. Um, let's end hopeful on this topic. What do you guys <laughs> want to see in the future? How can how can um, how can we improve on digital distribution and uh, and make the industry better? Alex, I'll give it to you first. What do you want to see in the future? Um, and to bring up one of my earlier points, I'd like to see devs go back to being a little more concerned about the game size. I mean, I know storage is super cheap at this point. But these these games are just like ballooning out to completely un, unrealistic sizes. Um, as you mentioned, with uh, what you say was the Final Fantasy game that was like 170 gigabytes. Again, unconfirmed. Un- yeah, allegedly 170 gigabytes. Like there is absolutely no reason for a game to be that size right now. Um, one of you know one of the other pet peeves that I have is uh, this division in storefronts and kind of exclusive storefronts um you know for the longest time i was i was to complain about this with tv where i was just like i don't want to pay 60 to 80 bucks a month to get 400 channels that i don't care about and two channels that i do i just want to be able to kind of go to one service and pick what i want and then we started seeing this with uh, music platforms um and with movie platforms where like Netflix, you had this plethora of choice. You paid them, you know, 10 bucks a month and you got all of the movies that they could possibly bring in. Uh, but then earlier, it was just announced that Disney is pulling their, you know, their entire library out of Netflix to start their own streaming service. Uh, and in the gaming world, you know, you've got everything on Steam, but then you've got Origin and uh, to a lesser extent, GOG and Humble Bundle, but they, they tend to provide kind of older games that are out of rotation anyway. Um, and then the, you know, the Xbox and the PlayStation and the Nintendo stores are all fragmented and all require separate accounts and passwords and payment schemes and subscriptions in some cases. And it's just like, I, I don't want that. I want one place that I can go to and get games for whatever I want to play on. Uh, that's just a pet peeve of mine, but I think it would make the industry... Yeah. better by reducing friction uh, of getting games out to consumers. I, think- I yeah, I I kind of uh, I kind of agree with that part. You know, we've seen a lot of these 
like splinter DRM storefronts come out and like few of them are as good as as Steam for all of Steam's issues especially with, like we were talking about with the green light stuff um it it's just kind of the best at, at what it does at least in my personal opinion and then you get a company like EA wants to come out with their own DRM storefront and it's a fucking nightmare um it's not so bad to be fair it's not so bad anymore but when it first launched it was it was awful yeah but there's but again like alex was saying you get these things like ubisoft wants their own and ea wants their own and activision well activision is now kind of moving to the battle net but the you know everyone wants to have their own like little drm thing and and you got to you got to log into all these things i don't know how realistic an idea it is to have just sort of one unified storefront but the person that figures it out the company that figures out how to do that well will they win they they win the money there must be someone must be working on this where it's just a piece of software that kind of looks like steam but it compiles all those storefronts into you know one application so you Dude, can be like, don't say this out loud cuz <laughs> Patent pending, patent pending, <laughs> patent pending, patent pending, patent pending, TM, TM, TM. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it, you, one of the appeals for me of Steam is everything is in one spot, but I can see like competition is good, especially in our economy. Like you just look at, look at, you can't have Steam be the only kid on the block. I'm glad other people are doing it and I, I understand why they want control over their own storefronts. Totally makes sense. But I don't want to have to go back and think like, oh, did I buy that that dice game on on EA or did I buy that back when the dice games were still on Steam and trying to figure out which one to open and wait for it to update. It's very clunky. It doesn't work that yeah. great. Well, um, and the other, I mean, the like, other issue that would... is that all these people come to the table and like make it mandatory that you download their DRM to play their game. You know, like I, I bought Max Payne 3 on Steam, but then I have to download Rockstar's uh, DRM yeah. to play it. And all of that stuff, like I agree, um, that competition is good in the long run. It you know it, it it keeps people sharp, it keeps people honest, it keeps them you know improving. But these people were like coming to the table with inferior products, and they weren't adding to the experience. They weren't challenging Steam to be better at what it did. They were just making my experience as a gamer worse. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, don't I make it like, more convenient to pirate the game than to pay money for. When it. I went That's to the, when I went to go buy Titanfall. Uh, when that came out, I, I think I still have the vestiges of Origin sitting on my PC, and it was like three different applications from EA that I had to download just to be able to install and play Titanfall. And I'm just like, why? This is totally unnecessary, and it's an awful experience. It used to be worse when I bought Crisis. It had to like install GameSpy Radar and all this like weird shit, and I was like, oh, what, yeah. "What is all this stuff?" So I I can appreciate it that that you know that EA Games are like oh, everything's on on Origin now or whatever it's called. Uh, so I, it's weird. I don't think anyone really knows the one good solution except for the the patented idea that I just came up with. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna have to withhold publishing this until I can figure out how to do that, but. Like I said, you can figure out how to inject my microtransactions into it, make yeah, exactly. it into a profit. <laughs> it's and it's a little different because you're not paying a subscription to use those things. You you can you can just download them and then forget about them forever until you need them again. Whereas yeah. stuff like Netflix, uh, I'm not going to have a Netflix account and then pay another five dollars, ten dollars a month for a Disney account. I just it, it's not convenient. It's a worse experience, and you know at, the, at best maybe I'll digitally rent it from 
iTunes or something if I really want to watch a Disney film. Yeah, I just, I mean, I guess I have. That's the wrong way to do it. I guess it. I have a like a fear in the back of my head that uh, gaming at some point will move completely to something like a Netflix style um, subscription model where you'll end up, you know, paying at Steam 20 bucks a month for unlimited access to their entire library. But then EA is going to do the same thing. And then Blizzard's going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And Riot and everybody else uh, is going to follow on, hop on that bandwagon. And all of a sudden, I'll be paying, you know, $700 a month in subscription <laughs> fees to play three games. Yeah, I think I think that future that you're talking about is inevitable in some ways. Um I don't want to go I don't want to go into this. I've got like crazy theories about the future of video games that I think are benef- that are good for gamers, but that's a that's a discussion for a whole other podcast topic. Thing, for the future, what I would really like is especially on the Steam end, I would they need better they need to inject some human interaction into it. If you've ever gone through customer support for Steam, it, it it's it's the the worst process for any retailer I've ever been through. Um, trying to return something or having issues with Steam itself. Getting a response usually takes days and half the time it's an automated response or not relevant to the question you had asked and then you have to wait days again for them to reply. So the customer service aspect, while it's great, you can just do what you want to do. You don't have to talk to people. I think they do need a better way to communicate with people who are having issues because they're notoriously bad for it. But last I heard, they were working on expanding that. And they're such a big company that they there's no reason for that to be so bad. I kind of wanted to push back on something that you had said, Alex, about developers being conscious of their the file size of their games, like the, the, the size of the video game when it's all said and done. I disagree, sir. <laughs> respectfully or, <laughs> fight, fight, or not no, respectfully? No, <laughs> maliciously disagree with you. <laughs> Okay, we're, we're all we're all friends here, at least for now. Yeah. So, I I I get what you're saying about th- them being conscious of the size of the game, um, for all of the, for all the reasons that you said. You know, it, the capabilities of distribution, the consideration of customer data storage, and those kinds of issues. But I think that in, in some ways, I'm kind of like in. Apple's camp where, you know, a lot of people get upset that they remove the headphone jack from the the new iPhones and their response is like, well, we're trying to push the market towards the the Bluetooth headphones. And it's like everyone gets upset for a while and then eventually people sort of get okay with using the Bluetooth headphones and then that discussion doesn't happen anymore because I, you know, Apple has kind of pushed everyone into that that next step of technology. Now, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to like get into an argument about Apple specifically. No, I mean, I, I agree largely with you on like that, at least on the Apple front, because I'm you know, currently sitting on one of the new MacBooks with the touch bar that does not have a CD drive or a standard USB slot. Everything's USB-C. Um, yeah. and, and, they're, just, and they're like, they're, you, they're trying to move that technology forward. They're trying to like, they're forcing you as the consumer to to take that leap but where and where i will argue about this on the on the games front is uh you know we expect a certain increase in in file sizes um mm-hmm. as games get more advanced as we have more interactions uh you know we can go back uh 10 years or so to the xbox 360 and a bunch of the 
digital distribution caps on those were like 50 megabytes and then they went up to, you know, 250 megabytes and then they went up to two gigabytes. Um, so, I mean, I, I do expect progression and expansion in file size as, mm-hmm. uh, as games become more capable and as graphics get better and as uh, developers figure out how to add more interactions and more subtle interactions um, to these games. But we're not really seeing a reasonable growth in file size right now. We're seeing an absolutely excessive ballooning in file size, uh, which to me speaks more of lazy programming rather than pushing to the future. Like, mm. you They're know, in, in, in engineering, we be. have this concept, uh, th- this big O notation, which is how efficient is an algorithm? Um, <clears throat> and what you want to strive for if, if you're trying to write, you know, what we call beautiful code, uh, you want to try and write something that is, um, that is big O efficient, um, you know, something that does not take up excessive amounts of space uh, at, at runtime. And, you know, I start seeing these 80, 90, 120 gigabyte games, which while granted I am not a game developer and I probably would fail miserably at trying to develop a game. Um, at the same time, I, I understand a little bit about how engineering works, or at least I hope so. Otherwise, people are paying me for all the wrong reasons. Um, yeah, we shouldn't stop trying to innovate just because. Yeah, like we can just make the we can just brute force it. If you've got a five hundred gigabyte storage space storage. and you can just lazily program a game and it comes out to five hundred gigabytes, you've done it wrong. Just flat out, you've done it wrong. There's no reason for that game to be that big if you can make some mild optimizations or reuse some textures or do some different shading that you know drops that game down to two hundred fifty gigabytes or. You know, I, I think honestly a fine size right now is 40 to 50 gigabytes. I feel like that's acceptable for how big a lot of these games are. So I, I, I don't disagree with you on the optimization front, but this idea of sort of enforcing some kind of arbitrary file size, I think I do have, I do take some issue with. And and, and I'll just briefly explain why and then we can move on because I don't want to like detract too much from the point you were making. But... I, you know, I think that tomorrow, if Bethesda announces that, you know, whatever, the next uh, Elder Scrolls game is going to be 10 terabytes, I, I think the day after that, you see, you know, 10 terabyte hard drives go on sale for cheap. You know, like people will start manufacturing and making this, this space available. You'll, you know, you'll see like data caps start to go up in response to the things that consumers express that they want through their through their dollar. And you know, I, I'm I'm being hyperbolic in a way, but I think that growth in this field it it, it goes like hand in hand with with the, you know, applications and hardware. Like they kind of push each other up in advancements. If that am I making sense? I feel like I'm talking nonsense, but no, I, it's, I understand the point that you're making, um, and it's I don't necessarily feel like demand is the thing that is making storage cheap. I think it's advancements in technology that make it a lot easier to yeah, mass but, produce. But you, you, I mean, you've heard that like necessity is the mother of invention. Like when it when it becomes necessary that you have a lot of storage to get this cool video game, 
you will start to see those things be developed more. You'll see advancements in those areas of technology. You will, but to, it'll it'll take years to get there. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that we we make that leap right away, but I also I also don't agree with that idea of some sort of like arbitrary sort of file size cap. I mean, I don't think there needs to be that would restrict that would restrict artistic expression. I don't think it needs um, to be like a, a a file size cap. It's a, you know it. Really, what what I think of this as is much more of kind of an honor-based system of, you know, we, we want, I would like to see developers strive more to reduce the file size of their games. Like, if you've done every optimization you can, or you reasonably can, in order to hit something like a release date, and your game is still 80 gigabytes, all right, fine, it's 80 gigabytes. You tried, but if you're just lazy and you produced a 150 gigabyte game and you didn't try and optimize in any way, well, that's kind of on you. Like, I got you. It has to I, be yeah, obvious. I, I think with that. they have to justify the increase of, of file sizes. I think other than just, I don't know, like now we're using 86 bit audio files. Like I, I don't care. It sounds the same coming through my headphones. So there's, you know, a, a give and take on that. Just like the Apple thing, to me, they have not justified why Bluetooth is better than a headphone jack. I just don't. I don't think that that is a better experience. So they've taken away something, but they haven't justified why or given me something better yet. So if there is a 120 gigabyte game, 150 gigabyte game, like make that the coolest, biggest game world I've ever seen, and that's something that I will accept as as being okay. But yeah. you know, it's all it's all very subjective. Yeah. And my point was only that, you know, when we get those experience, when you get an experience that does require a lot of data storage and it's, you know, and it's worth that data storage, you will see the, you know, those other areas of technology advance to keep up with that. Because when, you know, people are saying like, now you got to have a bigger hard drive. Well, they'll ramp up production on yeah. hard drives and you'll see advancements in hard drive space and, and all that stuff. So, so I mean, online, that was my only point. online gaming became a thing and we started seeing increases in bandwidth speeds. Um, you know, digital distribution became a thing and we saw increases in bandwidth capacity and increases in storage space. Like it, you know, it, it'll definitely happen. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you know, all of this stuff that we're talking about is, is kind of inevitable. I just wanted to make sure that we were, we were on the same page about that thing. What I want to see in the future of, you know, digital distribution is, I, I just want to see sort of the, the savings from digital distribution passed on to the customer. Now we, you know, all three of us have used steam and we know how cheap a game can, can be on there. You know, you can pick up a triple a title from last year for a couple of bucks, but at launch, all of those games, I more or less launch at that like $60 price point, at least when we're talking about the triple a releases, unless something has changed in like the last couple of years. Cause I haven't used steam in a while. I mean, but, I don't even think they're taking that into effect uh, into account anymore. The cost, the overhead cost of producing physical media, I think is just seen kind of as like a given for at least a certain amount. And then they expect, you know, a certain percentage of their sales to be digital, but because games have been so expensive to make now, because there's the teams have gotten so big and they're so complex. I, I, I think that's still justified. I mean, game prices haven't gone up in 20 years. Yeah, I mean, so. I, I don't feel bad paying 60 bucks for a game uh, on release day. I just think it's interesting that I can go to a store and buy a disc that's $60, that they had to press the disc and manufacture the casing and ship the game to the store 
and pay the employees and, and pay to keep the lights on at a store and all that stuff. And it's 60 bucks or I can go online and, and not to say that there's, there's nothing required to distribute a game online. I mean, obviously they got to maintain servers and maintain a storefront and all that, that kind of stuff. So I don't want to diminish the, the effort and, and time that goes into that side of things. But I imagine it's cheaper. And I, you know, I always thought like, oh, once we go digital and these companies get to save money on the, the physical manufacturing and shipping and all that stuff, that games will come down in price. I'm, I mean, maybe there's an argument that like with, with games not going up in price and, and uh, inflation being present that essentially video games have gone down in price. But with what when you can compare side by side the price of a digital copy versus the price of a physical copy and they're identical, that's where I start to kind of have some issues with the way it's done now. I mean, it's not again, not huge issues. It's just one of the things that I would like to see because there there's clearly a savings that happens when you're selling a game online. Yeah, to me, from my obviously like everything I say, nothing has any <laughs> nothing has any like basis of of experience, but. Um, it seems to me they would want you to be a digital customer over a physical customer because it costs them less. They're making a higher margin and they don't have to produce as many physical copies, which if they're selling them at the same price, they're probably making a lower margin on that physical copy, right? Because they had to put that money into it. So to me, from a business perspective, I I think it would make sense for most developers to say, hey, if you buy this digitally, it's only $40 versus $60 in, in the store. But I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just insignificant where they're like, whatever, we'll just make it all the same price because that's easier logistically. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think to maybe. some extent they just they kind of looked at uh, you know what will the market bear as the argument, and uh, they they said the market will bear sixty dollars being the price for a digital copy as well as a physical copy, and they they priced it out. They tried it. They ran with it. Millions of people bought day one digital copies at 60 bucks, and they just said, okay, market says this is okay, we'll keep going with it. I've heard anecdotally, too, that places like GameStop and, and brick-and-mortar retailers have really been in talks, you know, direct talks with developers or, or publishers saying that, like, you have to sell physical copies for the same price because you're going to run us into the ground if you don't. Uh, and I, I could see that because that would, that would I, be detrimental more than anything to, to those brick and mortar stores is if that they were getting, they had a more expensive version of the same thing that you could just buy online and bypass them completely. Yeah. I'm, and I mean, it's, it's actually an interesting argument with the digital age, I think is uh, there, there are some things that I go to physical stores to buy um, because of the, I need it now convenience factor and I'm willing to pay that markup, but with digital storefronts for games and instant downloads, there is really no longer any differentiation between the immediate gratification of buying the disc in store and going home and playing it and the immediate gratification of pressing the download button and unless you have desert speeds like Steve where yeah. it's like 5 days to download a game yeah i guess in, unless you're in you know a situation like that which uh, i mean i'm my download speeds aren't bad it's my upload <laughs> speeds that are a nightmare I was like, I, I think I'm fortunate enough to live in a pretty high bandwidth area or a pretty high capacity area and, you know, pay for a good enough internet connection that, yeah, I can, I'll download a, a 50 gigabyte game in two or three hours. Um, 
and it's you got big internet deal. tubes up there. We we do have the biggest of internet tubes, but I, I guess also on some level, I just feel like you know if brick and mortar stores can't keep up, why should we continue to prop them up? It's feels like a failed economics argument of if it is yeah. if something needs to be propped up by artificial means, why are we still utilizing that thing? You know, I know there's probably not a whole lot of love across the gaming world for GameStop. So if they can't keep up with digital distribution and if they're ultimately going to die because they can't match online prices, well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see someone's been reading their Ayn Rand. Um, Was that it? Did we cover everything we wanted to talk about before we move on to our emails? Probably not. Doubtful. No? (laughs) All right, good. Well, let's move on to emails anyway. Uh, If you have any questions or comments about digital sales of games or any of our previous topics, please email us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, if you have ideas for future topics you'd like us to talk about, send those along as well. Now, let's take a look at some listener emails. Jared, what do we got? Yeah, we have uh, from Cam on Twitter. He's at BattleCat, which is a great name. Uh, He says, hey, guys, topic request. Intrinsic versus extrinsic rewards, including achievements. In my opinion, GoldenEye64 was a great implementation. Um, And I wasn't, like, super sure what he was talking about, but Steve, you and I were talking about this a little bit. What What do you think about that? So I like the idea of discussing achievements in video games i think that they're i think that that's a, a topic ripe for discussion because it, it gets to the heart of like what what motivates players to to play games um, is he talking about like like trophies and 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 achievements versus like gameplay rewards i think so yeah Unlocks i'm pretty sure stuff? i'm pretty sure that's the the point of what he's talking okay. about okay. um and i'm curious what like in what ways he thinks goldeneye implemented these things well so you know i'd like to hear more from him if he's if he's listening you know send us some more information on on twitter or send us an email because i'd like to hear more about like what it was specifically in goldeneye that um you know made him consider this this topic i mean i i loved goldeneye and i think there was a lot to do inside of that game but i'm not sure necessarily what sort of like extrinsic uh, rewards there were in, in playing GoldenEye, like what, what rewards outside of the game motivated him to keep playing it. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, d- a good discussion about that carrot on a stick of of the achievements. And I because I, I know people back in the Xbox di- Xbox days who were just about increasing their gamer score. Oh, that still happens. Yeah, people, I, yeah, people will go much, buy, but people yeah, will I, go buy like crappy, you know, Dinosaur Adventure 19 because it has like an easy platinum trophy that you can unlock and this and thus kind of like increases your gamer score on whatever you know whatever platform there were call of duty servers that you could accidentally join on on consoles that would like you would join them and get one kill and all of a sudden you have like every achievement in the game that was kind of like late in the call of duty 4 history but they uh people were running their own servers somehow and uh yeah just hacking them together so that you would just like join it and then oh here's every achievement in one second hmm so I mean, well, let's not uh, let's not burn all of our discussion talking about it right now. Sure, yeah, but uh, <laughs> thank you for the for, thanks for the suggestion, Cam. Battle yeah, Cat. thank you, Cam. Appreciate um, it. Appreciate you listening. Our good friend Chester Copperpot on Twitter, he posted <laughs> an image that I had actually seen on Reddit too of the Rockstar's development 
of uh, release release games and stuff. You know, it's like it goes through like 2008 with Grand Theft Auto 4, and then 2009 with um, I think that was like an expansion for that game, and then Red Dead Redemption came out in LA Noir, Max Payne 3, and then you get to 2013 and it's Grand Theft Auto 5, and from 2013 to 2017, nothing. So it's a funny little timeline, and it, he's alluding to uh, some of the microtransactions that uh, Rockstar discovered that they yeah. probably could make more money on than ever developing another game again. So yeah, I, the fact you know, that they says, released that Red Dead Redemption trailer they've uh, made, made me real excited. They've made <laughs> so much money off of GTA V microtransactions. And it's yeah. like, this is, For an online experience, I think is bad. God, I don't is, think GTA V online is fun. This is one aspect of gaming that I People absolutely are... hate is microtransactions. I despise them. It, you know, the the rise of DLC is microtransactions kind of prettied up. And, you know, it's a pig with lipstick on it. It's still a freaking pig. Um, and you know, it's, but it's a pretty sexy pig. Uh, I, I mean, I guess if it's using the right shade of red. Uh, but microtransactions. They've they just like permeated every aspect of gaming now, and it's so frustrating. Of like, I'm gonna turn this game on and play. Would you like to buy the five battle pack for five ninety nine? Okay, you bought the five battle pack for five ninety nine. Uh, now, no, wait, now you need the, the, the one hundred dollar pack. pack. Is the best value though you, yeah. for ninety nine ninety nine? That's like the best value. You're in the game. You don't have a gun. Do you want to purchase the gun pack? Great, you've got a gun. Uh, you have no ammo. Do you want to purchase an ammo pack? It's, you know, fuck off. Let me play the game. So I guess Chester is kind of insinuating that because they are making money on microtransactions, they are no longer interested or have the resources to put towards developing a new game. Do you guys think that's true? I mean, I think that's patently false. We, we are going to see Red Dead Redemption 2 come out. Uh, we'll, we will see GTA 6 at some point. Um they are still interested in developing new IPs because their their existing ones can't run forever. No, but you, I mean, they they haven't made a new game because they haven't needed to. So there's there is enough of a market of people who are willing to play Grand Theft Auto Five and engage with those microtransactions that Rockstar has not had to do very much in the way of developing new properties. They have made a lot of additions to the Grand Theft Auto Online service. You know, I. I get the notifications all the time that they're releasing, you know, new cars, new game modes, new, you know, all kinds of different stuff for that. So it's not like they're doing nothing and just relying on microtransactions to make money. I mean, they are doing work and putting, you know, adding to that experience. I will be really curious to see how much they've learned from Grand Theft Auto V moving forward. Like, Mm. will, will Red Dead Redemption 2 have a big online... with that? (laughs) Well, Well... I'm really curious if it has like a big online component because I think what, you know, I, I would be really interested to see like what a rock star MMO looks like. Now I'm not saying that like Red Dead Redemption 2 is going to be that, but if they're going down this road of like, we want to have people engaged with our online content for long periods of time, that ain't a bad model. Um, and I, I guess. the Red Dead Redemption, you know, that Western world might be a cool world to, build a you know a, a digital life inside of rockstar's um, next game is westworld i'm not gonna speculate on like what they're doing or how they're appropriating their resources but i would rather them just make a red dead redemption sequel and then if they wanted to down the line make red dead redemption online as a standalone thing that anyone could get into and or whatever i don't know 
maybe it's i mean maybe it's good they they do like they did with grand theft auto 5 and release them at the same time so that everybody just has it and then they can you know yeah if they're not charging a subscription for that service like an mmo might have back in the day they they sell horse armor i don't know but yeah, it's, I mean, it's I, interesting. I think, it's interesting to look at the timeline and the, the releases up until GTA Five. But I think Rockstar. I, I mean, I wouldn't be too afraid that this next Red Dead Redemption game is just going to be an online game, or that they're going to put all the emphasis on the online component. The way they've been marketing it is the narrative side of things. I think they know what made Red Dead Redemption One so great, and it wasn't, you know. It wasn't that you could buy silly pants and wear them in the game. It was it was a a really cool narrative told in a way that no other video games had really done up until that point. So I think that that's how they're marketing this game, and I wouldn't be too worried that uh, that they're going to shy away from that. Yeah, I, I I feel like Rockstar is relatively self aware, and they they do listen to the community uh, in some ways. So I'm I'm not I'm not terribly worried about it now, but you know, I would have liked to see some other stuff from them in these last four or five years up leading up to this new new game that's coming out. So, uh, but, you know, other developers are filling in the holes there. There's plenty of open world games these days. Yeah. And I mean, 2017 has maybe been one of the arguably one of the best years for video games on the books. I mean, there's yeah. just so much great stuff to play. I don't have I don't have the budget to support trying to even play half of the stuff that has come out but it's exciting times we live in and i'm definitely looking forward to that next red dead redemption so just uh, get your two terabyte hard drive so you can install it yep <laughs> yep well thank you chester for sending in that very snarky <laughs> picture of uh, the he followed that up with them microtransactions lol <laughs> yep them them microtransactions um, okay, Steve, do we want to move into our uh, regular uh, call-in portion of the show? Yeah, let's move into uh, our phone call section. Uh, you guys all know the number, so make sure to get those calls in, and uh, we'll, we'll play them on the air. Jared, let's take it away. All right, uh, let's see. Who's our first caller here? It looks like it's uh, Mark from uh, Arizona. You, you, I think you might know this guy, actually, Steve. Hold on. I might. I might. Is, is this thing? Hello? Hello? Steven, it's, it's your dad. Listen, I was listening to that uh, new podcast of yours, uh, Game Breaking Feature, and I just wanted to say that it is absolutely wonderful. There's not a thing that I would change except that you're, you're wrong about so many things. I, I can't help myself. Sorry. Difficulty levels? Yeah, absolutely. You have to have different difficulty levels because uh, of people like me. Okay. I, I would enjoy playing some of the same games that you play. Um, what, what are they up to now? Donkey Kong 5? And uh, but I'm not as good as you are. So why should I not be able to enjoy the same basic game, but at a at a difficulty level that suits my very low abilities? I think you've mentioned to me that uh, people then would play it at different levels as and then somehow represent that they had all played it at the same high level. And uh, and OK, maybe I don't know. Maybe that would happen. But, uh, you know, that that wouldn't be me. I would just want to play and have a good time. Uh, some games I play hard and some games I play easy because that's how I want to play. And uh, anyway, like I said, uh, everything about your show is completely uh, wonderful, 100% accurate, uh, except for the stuff that you get wrong. All right. Uh, thanks. Uh, call me sometime. And Jared, always good to hear your voice. See what you can do about my son, will you? Okay. 
Talk to you later, guys. Wow. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And I, I completely agree uh, with everything that Mark just said. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Dad, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, okay. This, so our difficulty... Throw, throwback, right? To yeah. Way back. Our difficulty was that our episode? first episode? I think that was our first episode. Yeah, yeah. So this is the episode that I've probably thought about the most since we've done it because I had I feel like I had a very controversial opinion on the topic of difficulty settings, and I feel like I don't know maybe I'm sort of failing at communicating my point about difficulty settings because um, I my my fear of, of variable difficulty settings is has never been that someone will misrepresent what difficulty they played the game at. It's not like someone will play it on easy and then suggest that they've they've played the game on hard and that they had that experience. I, I think it splinters. I, I've said I said this on that episode, but maybe I didn't communicate it well, so maybe you guys can help me. But I think it it fractures the discussion of that game. And we talked about The Witcher and how at certain difficulties, cert, you had to use different mechanics within that game to progress. And that's that's sort of the extreme of this this fear that I have about variable difficulties, but can you guys, is there something you guys can do to help me out with like communicating well, that? Cause I feel like I've I failed. Underst- sure. I just, and I think that's kind of bad design. If, if the game is leaving out entire mechanics because they're making it easier, then I think that's, that's bad design. Um, and if you find the game boring on easy, that means that you just didn't put very much effort into designing your game to still be fun without the elements that make it hard. So I, while I understand what you're saying uh, as far as putting everything at one difficulty so you have the same experience all around in the same discussion, uh, I think it's really just a design issue. Where, but I, I believe people should still have the freedom if they want to play through things for different reasons like a story on an RPG or you know just exploring the crazy set pieces of Uncharted 4. Um, I, I've maintained that, so I don't really have a whole lot else to add to the discussion other than um i feel vindicated yeah (laughs) i mean mark you're welcome to call in anytime i'm in the camp that i just think steve is you know wrong so that's yeah it's a very popular camp and most people live there (laughs) well maybe there just aren't enough examples of games that are that are good whether you play them on easy or hard i don't know yeah and that's true i i well I don't know because I don't really I, I typically don't go play games on multiple difficulties. I'll set it on one difficulty and then hammer through the game that way, regardless yeah. of how easy or difficult it, it tends to be at that setting. So I don't have a so lot of actually, experiences trying things at different difficulty levels. I did do that with the last uh, Uncharted. Um, I played through the game on hard uh, to get the, you know, the enjoyable uh, kind of tough combat uh, aspect of it. Uh, but then when I went back to go do achievement hunting, where you know you go find all of the little treasures scattered throughout the game, I played it on easy because I'm like I'm treasure hunting. I'm I'm just gonna like work my way through the game, pick these up, and I don't want to get stuck on a boss battle for 50 minutes doing this. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm a piece of shit for doing that, but that's how I played that. Maybe I would be. Maybe if it was clear, like, hey, play this game on regular. And because this is how the game was intended to be played, or if you're looking for more of a challenge, um, play it. I don't know. Maybe like if it's more descriptive in the ways that, that it changes the gameplay, that would be helpful. 
but uh, I, I'm I not can feel Steve die away. a little bit as I said that <laughs> through no, the internet. No, I mean, no, I, and and don't get me wrong. I understand all of the the reasons why difficulty settings exist in games, and I don't want to make it seem like I don't want people to enjoy certain things. But even in that, even in that phone call, um, my father had said that he plays different games for different reasons. I think is I think is how he phrased it. I'd have to go back and re-listen to it. But that's kind of what I'm getting to, right? Is like if you want to play a a, a third person shooter, you know, and, and you want it to be a certain kind of experience. Like let's say you you don't want to have a difficult experience. Go play Uncharted. Like what if they just made Uncharted they with no difficulty settings, it was just set to easy. I don't think anyone would complain if if Uncharted or if the Uncharted series just had in one difficulty setting and it was pretty easy to get through. I think most people play that game for the set piece moments, for the story moments, you know, for those characters and their interactions. I don't know anyone who plays those games for like the the difficult combat. It, I find that stuff mostly frustrating in those games. So I think if they just said like we're going to make it easy to play through this game, I don't think anyone would notice that the difficulty settings had been removed from that game. The other side of this is I I I think that there are ways to design games to accommodate people uh at variable skill levels as i mentioned earlier i recently played all the way through bloodborne and that's a game that i think is people claim is difficult like it's notorious for its difficulty level i don't think that that's true i think the game you can you can play through it and have it be a difficult experience um or there's there's ways to improve your character. There's like I was mentioning in one of our other episodes. There's these things called chalice dungeons that you can go through that essentially kind of let you power level your character so that when you return to the main storyline, the bosses are easier, the enemies you're facing are are easier. But you haven't you haven't adjusted a uh, some sort of arbitrary dial on the game. You've just your character's power level has improved, so those playing through the game gets easier. Um, and that might not be the uh, perfect implementation of this, but I think of other games, maybe like uh, like the Deus Ex series. Like maybe you're not the best twitch aim shooter, but maybe you invest your experience points in hacking and in stealth and in and in areas like that, so that you can progress through the game in ways that don't require you to be adept at controls. And these are the kinds of things that. You know, I, I kind of hope developers would consider more than just like, oh, we're going to have a slider where you can choose how much health enemies have. That to me is yeah. less interesting game design. We uh, probably just don't have enough good examples of what that looks like. This this fantasy game that you've come up with. I I understand uh, what you're getting at, but it's it's hard, I think, for people who haven't seen anything like that before to imagine not being able to choose, you know, what which exact difficulty they get to play. Yeah, yeah, and again, like I know, I know I'm in the minority on this on this topic, and and like I said, I I understand and appreciate um, people being able to uh, play and experience games the way that they want to, but I think that if we found a good way to to sort of unify difficulty, uh, that that would be sort of the the preferred like utopian vision of. Of video game design but i don't know how to do that obviously it's very difficult and that's why we have difficulty settings in games we don't have to spend too much more time on this because i i feel like we've talked about this this one a lot i mean I, don't get me wrong i i like coming back to to this topic but i i feel like i'm i'm a poor communicator of my of my thoughts on this 
particular topic and I, I get frustrated at my like inability to express my my true feelings about this stuff. I'm sure it'll come up again. I'm sure it will. I hope it does. I hope it does. And I hope in that time that I, you know, I can come up with maybe better examples or find another way to sort of clarify my my stance on this. Uh, um, all, all of our all of our lines are currently lighting up. Unfortunately, I think that's going to have to be our last call for this episode. Yeah. Our um, one, so our Steve, one I'm going to I'm going to throw this back to you uh, to start wrapping this thing up. OK, yeah, that's good. That's going to do it for our, our listener emails and our uh, our long standing call in section that you've all known for a very long time. Again, you can send your your own feedback to us at podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Alex Vogelman. Alex, thank you so much for being here, man. Yeah, buddy, dude. Thanks so much for coming on our show. I'm, I'm happy that you've been uh, listening and writing in, and it's been a real pleasure to having you on here. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's, it's been a blast. This is uh, probably the best two-hour conversation I've had in months. I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know what I, that says about my I, life, but I appreciate being wrong in person <laughs> with you. <laughs> Alex, where can people keep up with you? Any any work you're doing? Where, where can people follow you at? Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Fogelman. Most of my work is not actually customer facing, but you know, just keep an eye on the PlayStation Store. Um, and if you really hate it, let me know, and I'll make sure that uh, you no longer have access to it. Oh my god! <laughs> Again, uh, like uh, I'd like solved. to reiterate that Alex does not represent <laughs> Sony. <laughs> yeah, I am not representing Sony in any way, shape, or form. But he will make it his personal mission to ruin you. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, Jared, what do you got coming up? So we talked about this a few episodes ago, but uh, I will be doing the. 2017 Extra Life 24-hour uh, marathon stream on November 4th, starting at 8 p.m. Uh, I'm sorry, 8 a.m. Uh, Pacific time. If you're not familiar with Extra Life, it's a, it's an organization. It unites thousands of players across the world for a 24-hour gaming marathon to support the Children's Miracle Network hospitals. Uh, so it's a big network of a bunch of different hospitals. Uh, I get to uh, select which one that all my donations go towards and 100% of my funds raised will be benefiting the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Since its inception in 2008, Extra Life has raised more than $30 million for local Children's Miracle Hospital networks. So it's a, it's a great cause for a great purpose. And I just get to play games all day. So it's going to be fun. The Children's Miracle Network hospitals raise funds and awareness for 170 member hospitals that provide 32 million treatments each year to kids across the U.S. and Canada and donations will stay local, like I said, uh, to that local LA hospital that I have picked. So I will be tweeting out more information about that as we get closer. But I do have an Extra Life um, team page now. It's extralife.org slash team slash GB feature. Uh, you can just search me on Extra Life's website if you want. But I did create a team. So if you want to join the Game Breaking Feature stream team for this, this event, you can. And we can all work towards a common goal. It's for a great cause. Uh, I'll be streaming on the 4th on twitch.tv slash Jared Bruner. And there'll be links to my my charity page and everything like that. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And if anyone in the community wants to join, you're more than welcome to. I'll be playing a lot of my backlog, a lot of single player games, probably some uh, Battlegrounds and other multiplayer shenanigans. So I look forward to uh, seeing everyone. But Jared, I don't have 24 hours to watch you play video games. You don't have to watch the whole thing. Oh, okay, and you don't good. have to participate <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> Ooh, I was like, God. wait, what are you? Th- <laughs> um, Ain't no one no. got time Ooh. for that. Ooh. No, All you right, don't have good. 
if you want to join uh, and just jump in for a couple of hours and, and play some multiplayer games with me, let me know. And uh, like, obviously, if you join the team and help raise funds, you don't have to commit to the full 24 hours. Uh, Any time that you can spend helping fundraise would be super appreciative because it's going towards, um, you know, people who need it. And and uh, our, we live in interesting times. So helping people, it, it, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, man. Right on. Thank you for doing this. It's yeah, of course. I'm it's gonna be real to cool. It. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, like this, this, this thing's been going on since 2008, but this is my first year doing it. So yeah. um, it, it should be fun. Yeah, hopefully I can find uh, some way to get engaged with uh, with that. Maybe we can hop onto some multiplayer. I gotta get my PC like dug out of storage and and hooked up so we can maybe uh, what would be a good one for us to play? Um, maybe, maybe some of the ship. Maybe we could get oh, the ship yeah. rocking. The, sh- the ship is pretty good. Um, <laughs> some don't starve multiplayer would be kind of fun. Oh um, yeah, well yeah, I haven't played I haven't played that game in a long time. We'll throw but throw around some ideas. I'd will... like to play some like un, uh, Left for Dead, like throw back to some older uh, games. You know, like the ship. That's yeah. always good. That'd be cool. So. Load up some uh, Team Fortress and see how many hats you can accumulate. Yeah, I'm disgusted that you even brought that up, Alex. <laughs> Maybe Alex will join me and uh, teach me. We'll do. We'll take a couple hours out of the stream, and he can teach me some League of Legends plays. There it is. Uh, you know, being at the bottom of the competitive bracket, I'm sure I will be a fantastic teacher. <laughs> Great. Yeah, stay, stay, stay in your lane, scrub. That's all I know. <laughs> Mid or feet. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, Alex, Jared, thank you so much. Alex, do you invert your Y-axis or do you play standard? Oh, my God. Uh, only savages invert their Y axis. Someone, someone's returned Jared to his uh, his previous update. No, we had a rollback, guys. There's a critical bug. We've oh, we've returned man. Jared from version 1.01 back to version 1.0. Thanks for talking. <laughs> See you later. Thank, thank you, Jared, for all of this. <laughs>